welcome to the Lover's Hole, which may or may not be a Patrick O'Brien podcast. I'm pretty sure, though, that you're with Ian. And with Mike. And one way or another, we're finding our way through the Aubrey Matron novels of that fella, Patrick O'Brien. <sighs> Mike, tell us where we got to in our journey last week. Tell us where we might be headed this week. You bet. In last week, in Chapter 7 of Nutmeg of Consolation, Horseflesh Gothen demonstrated exactly how not to behave at Jack's big farewell dinner for, for the nutmeg and the surprise and all the consorts there. Jack greeted all the surprises who were happy to have the best of both worlds, being now both privateers and a kingship with Jack restored to the list. Stephen agreed to sell the surprise to Jack. That was a big moment there. Mm -hmm. And Martin had found scurvy aboard the surprise. And Jack had agreed, as we, as we kind of left our heroes there at the end, to find an island to gather some fruit while they're on the way to Sydney. This time, our heroes do make that island fruit stop, but they find much more than expected there and leave with far more than fruit. There's blue water sailing, delightful guests aboard, tension between Jack and Martin, rats going cold turkey, self-medicating captains dissing the Irish, and that famous cold reptilian glare returns. <gasps> wow, quite a lot to pack into this episode. So the newly reunited pair of friends, Martin and Stephen Maturin, are still going aloft to share their catching up on their recent naturalist adventures. While they're up there, a tropical island is sighted, first of all just by the cloud above it and then the island itself. Bondon has made some progress with these two characters, though. He's taught them to come up by the futtock shrouds like Christians. And if you're not sure what futtock shrouds are, O'Brien tells us in the rest of the paragraph as we read on. Reaching the top in this, the seaman's way, entailed climbing what was, in effect, a rope ladder, inclined some 55 degrees from the vertical, 55 degrees backwards, so that one hung like a sloth, gazing at the sky. Their movements were not unlike those of a sloth either. And Great to squeeze in a mention of a sloth right here. And right. Pullings also mentions that the surprise, therefore, is the only ship where both of the medicos go aloft without using, wait for it, the lover's hole. I might, we're going to miss them on their visits here. We are. <sighs> anyway, this landfall is a pretty neat one. Um, they were expecting to see Sweeting's Island, and Jack and Tom are really pleased that they got it pretty much dead on. There are a couple of references for where this may or may not be. Our old friend Tom Horn from Cannonade.net posts a little thank you to another uh, Patrick O'Brien mapping enthusiast, Kerry Webb, who's uh, a longtime contributor to the gunroom for placing this island as one of the Sonsoral Islands. And uh, if you go looking for Kerry Webb's maps, uh, you might find it. We'll post out a link as well um, to help you all find those. So now that we've found this island, Martin wants to climb higher and get an even better view. Stephen wonders at his impatience. And this is by no means the first time and certainly not the last time in these few chapters that Stephen is starting to, to, to bump on other people and their little character flaws here. The impatient Martin says, well, I'm not as amphibious as Stephen or Jack. I quite like to set foot on land and draw strength from it. I like to be away from a surface that's in perpetual motion. And he doesn't like the idea that other, other folks are laughing and kind of cavorting while he, with relatively poor sea legs, has been flung into the scuppers. He says that he loves the voyages, especially the naturalizing, um, and he loves the fresh air as well. 
but on land away from the Orlop. Uh, and he loves being away from the doldrums. And we get a hint here of how long he might have spent aboard the formerly stinky surprise in the fairly calm, depressing doldrums either side of the equator. After passing lots of interesting islands, when Tom had pushed the surprise so hard to make the rendezvous, Martin now really wants to stop and see an island. He's really longing for something solid under his feet. Um, And he wonders aloud to himself whether this island is going to be as poor and barren as Stephen thinks that it might be. Seems not really sure. He really hasn't hadn't heard of it before Jack telling him about it. Jack had told him that Jack's cousin, Admiral Carteret, had discovered the island when he was captain of the Swallow, sailing around the world with Captain Wallace. And, And they're stopping here so that, you know, Jack can make this stop, get this fruit, and stay out in what he judges to be the most favorable winds, the best way to sail to avoid reefs, and to really stay pretty much blue water sailing the rest of the way to Sydney. Now, Martin is very disappointed. He'd hoped they'd see Papua New Guinea. He hoped they'd see the Great Barrier Reef. And and Stephen says that Jack's cousin found very little of natural interest on the Sweetings Island you know, that he had discovered, um, other than some of the fruits that would, would interest them and some amiable inhabitants living along the island's single cove there. Now, Martin wonders if they'll see sirens here. And, I, you know, I always, I, I get, you know, kind of caught up from sirens. Martin believes in sirens. And, you know, here we're back to sirens as, as Stephen points out, you know, again, a little bit irritated with Martin. You know, they're only, you know, as I've only told you a dozen times, you know, their only Pacific sirens are Stellar's Sea Cow in the far north and the Dugong, you know, down around New Holland here. So we do get, like you said, Ian, these little, little bits of tension here with Stephen yeah. and Martin. We've got perhaps some coming up with Jack and Martin here. But this Philip Carteret, real character, maybe perhaps not Jack's cousin, but right, real character? Yeah, Mike, that's right. Philip Carteret, he would have been a fairly old man uh, by the time... The, uh, the characters are talking about him here. Um, he was an 18th century naval officer, made post-captain in 1771, a rear admiral in 1794, went around the world as a lieutenant with Captain Jack Byron, that's a Falworther Jack, who we've heard about before, uh, aboard HMS Dolphin, and again with Wallace, when Wallace was the captain of the Dolphin, that was in 1767. Carteret's own command, HMS Swallow, had become separated from Wallace. And in the course of that, he discovered a large number of South Sea islands, not including this fictitious Sweetings Island. But he spent a lot of his life fighting unsuccessfully to get recognition in print and from the Admiralty for his discoveries and South Sea exploration. You can get that just like we did from the Patrick O'Brien Muster book. And it's a nice example of a nice realistic reference, spot on for the time and for exploration in this particular part of the Pacific. Now, after dinner, Jack and Stephen are talking about Martin in his absence. And there's a little bit of a theme all the way through this chapter here. There's what you might call a hint of reservation and maybe worse between Jack and Martin. And Jack describes to Stephen how this guy, Nathaniel Martin, is an easy man to respect, but a hard man to like. And Jack, as ever, the kind of social peacemaker undertakes to invite Martin to dinner and try and make amends a little bit here. So the next day, as they stand in for Sweetings Island, they, they're they moving in in the daylight to be sure of you know, a clear view for their passage. 
They see some canoes along the beach and one very long house on stilts and what they think of as a typical South Seas Polynesian kind of a village. The surprises make him ready to receive the island's king and many of the foremast sailors have got their shore-going rig on. They've got together some gifts that they are pretty sure are going to delight South Seas women. And these gifts include nails and bottles and pieces of looking glass. And as they get closer, they see no movement on the island and they drop anchor and there's no sound from the shore. Jack asks if it seems to be strangely quiet here. Stephen says, well, it does seem uninhabited, but he reports that three sharp-eyed men have already reported seeing young women in grass skirts on the edge of the granary. <laughs> so as, <laughs> as is ever so, there or not, we saw them, right? Martin says perhaps everybody's assembled in the grove for a religious ceremony. And he adds nothing more numinous than a grove, as the Hebrews know, says Martin, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, this just it's, it's yet another one of these Patrick O'Brien's just dropping this sentence in, you know, having religion as one of my majors. You know, numinous was I wrote a lot about the numinous, but I thought <laughs> if I hadn't been. I never would have stumbled across this word. But. I, I love this, this idea of, of numinous, something that has a strong religious or spiritual quality suggesting the presence of the divine. So oh, well done here. We yeah. So I think given how strangely quiet it is, Jack has Bondin and Wes bring along muskets, keep them hidden. He has the ship's broadside ready in case of trouble. And, and they all get in and read as the midshipman you know, leads the boat to shore. And as they walk into the island, Reed goes off to look at the canoes that they're passing there. And he comes running back pale, says there's something horrible, dead lying there. He thinks perhaps it's a woman. So Stephen stops everyone. He goes over, checks the canoe and returns quickly, telling Jack to send any men who've not had the smallpox back to the ship immediately. He verifies that Reed has never had smallpox. So he has him bathe in the sea, sit alone, has his clothes burned. And then he sends him back to the ship for the loblolly boy to wash him all over in vinegar and cut off his hair before he goes aboard the ship. And it, it's very clear it, to Stephen's mind that this is what's happening, but it, it comes as a shock to us because we weren't really expecting it. And really quickly, we're deeply into the horror of the situation here. Stephen and Martin and Jack go to the longhouse, the big kind of ceremonial kind of headquarters building in this village. And the text says, Jack walked deliberately after Stephen and Martin, hating each step. He expected something very unpleasant, repulsive. But what he saw and what he breathed as he followed them up the ladder and into the buzzing twilight of the longhouse was far, far worse. Almost the entire village had died there. And amidst this horror outside, they notice some of the things that have been going on, you know, in, in and around this, this terrible you know, smallpox outbreak that's happened in this village here. Stephen says, you're right, they were gathered outside for a religious ceremony. He points to some of the skulls that are outside. He believes that the poor souls outside had been sacrificed to preserve the tribe. And Jack noticing that there are axes nearby that had clearly been brought there by by a whaler expresses a little bit of indignation that it was whalers who brought this disease to the island. And Mike, I, I was really chilled by this. First of all, the writing is really evocative. A buzzing twilight really, really sets me on edge. And I feel this really, you know, quite viscerally, much more really than I felt 
um, Stephen's indignation in the scene that's going to come at the end of this chapter that we're getting to here. And looking back, I noticed this juxtaposition. We we had the jollity of the surprises seamen waiting for a run ashore, juxtaposed next to the realization that it was a whaler's crew who brought this disease. And the whaler's crew must have come ashore with the same mood and the same you know, kind of high spirits and good intentions as the whalers. And you know, once again, pleasure and disaster are just a hair's breadth apart. And it's really, really chilling. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I kind of had this... You know, it's 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 certainly a different story, but this Lord of the Flies kind of, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, feeling it, the buzzing in here. Ah, yeah. Well, Stephen has Jack and the hands gather coconuts near the shore. He says, you know, you guys stay here, do this. Martin and I are going to go inshore to find the fruits and plants that we need for the scurvy. But he warns them, don't stay around in this mephitic atmosphere. You know, as soon as you're done, you head back to the ship. And by the way, have the boat scrubbed with vinegar by men who can show their pockmarks and so make sure nobody yeah. who has not had smallpox gets around the boat. And then Jack says, you know, he'll send another boat back for Stephen and he'll make sure that they're crewed by men who have had smallpox in the past here. Martin and Stephen, you know, head inland and upwards and they're finding these enclosures. And when they go inside, they, they find that there's bananas growing there and vegetables and taro, you know, what Stephen calls a famous anti-scorbutic. So, you know, something that they're very much looking for. They've clearly been planted, but they're like in no order here. And as they climb higher on the island, there are all these additional enclosures that they pass. And, and they're looking at plants. They're doing kind of their naturalist thing and mollusks. And they hear a sound like a woodpecker. And so they follow this sound through the woods. And Stephen's kind of looking through these flowers and trees and everything. And he thinks that he sees a small black ape. You know, and after a little bit of time, he whispers glabrous to Martin, meaning, you know, if this ape is free from hair or down, it's smooth skinned. So I think they're getting kind of excited. This is, you know, you don't come up on this all the time. And then a second one comes out from behind the orchids. And now, you know, with nothing kind of between them, it's very clear that this is a small, thin black girl joining another small, thin black girl that they're beating on a coconut with a broad, flat rock here. So Stephen, and I, and I love this, Stephen kind of coughs to sort of let them know that they're there. And then he and Martin, at Stephen's suggestion, sit down, turned away from the girls as if they're taking no notice of them. Um, he <laughs> did see, and he mentions quietly to Martin that the children are well over the disease. So they think there's, there's nothing to risk here. And then Stephen, after a little while, holds out a hand and asks if he can help. And they kind of recognize the gesture. And, and you know, O'Brien tells us that they're so thirsty that they don't run away. They hand him the coconut and Stephen pierces it with his lancet. And Martin, in the meantime, opens another coconut for the second girl. And O'Brien writes, the girls drink with extraordinary application. <laughs> I love the language. And then the girls start pointing at this great big flat stone and they're saying the same word repeatedly. Stephen, you know, moves this slab. Turns out it's it's a well under there, and the girls plunge their faces into the water, and you know they can watch as their bellies are swelling as they're drinking. Stephen says to Martin, you know, we need to take these girls to the ship. We need to feed them, and we need to put them to bed. And Martin, meanwhile, is thinking how amazed all the world would be if this had been these nondescript apes that they first originally thought they were looking at through the woods and flowers. 
<laughs> I, I simultaneously feel a bit bad for and then a bit irritated by Nathaniel Martin here. On the one hand, Stevens had all these magnificent natural experiences in the mountains at Kumai and the orangutan and tapirs and all the rest of it. And uh, Nathaniel Martin thinks he's about to have a moment of you know discovering this great rare species, but it turns out it's just a kid. So I'm slightly sympathetic, but on the other hand, I'm very irritated at him. You know, here are two, the, the last two humans of this entire population. And this is a heck of a discovery and a real, real profound moment. And he's thinking, oh, I was hoping there were going to be apes. In the end, Mike, I think everyone in this chapter is going to be at least a little bit irritated with poor old Nathaniel Martin. Um, I know we are as readers right now, or at least I am. Um, Stephen's going to be, and we already know that Jack is. Um and, and it's odd, isn't it? Martin seems to have the same enthusiasms as Stephen, and he seems to be such a positive guy, but it's just not quite the whole deal with Martin. There's something about the balance of his character that means you can't quite love him the way that we love our other primary characters here. Right. Yeah, there's something just a little off, which we'll hear about musically later, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, they're, they're walking down with the girls, they pass one of these enclosures and the girls roar to be lifted over the wall and inside they run to eat bananas and they do the same thing at the second enclosure. By the time they get to the third, the girls are really too tired and by the time they get to the shore, Stephen and Martin are carrying them onto the beach asleep and Jack has seen them coming. He assumes that Stephen's carrying something like a sloth or a wombat and, and you know has sent out a boat to beat them. And Martin doesn't want to pass his girl over to the boat. He's afraid he's going to wake her. Jack is on the boat and is a parent, and it's got some experience with this. Says, "Look, when they're sleeping like that, they're you know they're 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 completely loose. Their mouths open. They're drooling. Nothing's going to wake them. Um, and and he's you know I haven't sort of inserted it here, but he's almost a little bit chiding Martin, like you obviously don't have any children. So again, we get a little bit of that flavor here. Oh. So back on board." Jack sends for a character who rejoices in the name of Jemmy Ducks. Now, Jemmy Ducks is his job title, strictly speaking. His first name's not Jemmy and his second name's not Ducks. He's the keeper of poultry and also sometimes rabbits and larger animals. Uh, turns out he has a real name. John Thurlow was the name he was baptized with, but he's Jemmy Ducks to the whole crew. And Jemmy Ducks, by night known as John Thurlow, has daughters. And this offers him a unique qualification to help out with the situation with these two girls here. He says he has four daughters among his eight kids and he's used to their ways. And he says that's why he signed up to go to sea. And which of us hasn't thought that on the odd occasion with daughters? But there you go. Um, Jack puts him in charge of the girls and asks to have them washed up, have them covered with the doctor's ointment and their hair cut off so that they can be, you know, they can all be sure that they're definitely not infectious and they're definitely cleaned up there. He says he'll give Jemmy Ducks a mate to help him. And Jemmy replies, thank you kindly, sir. Just like by land. I think he's talking about Mrs. Ducks, of course. Right. Just like by land. Well, they say no man can escape his fate. <laughs> so he comes and goes quickly, does Jemmy Ducks as a character in this story. But I love this kind of very phlegmatic, very low-key thing he's got going on with his life as uh, as looking after these, uh, these two girls. Now, it's funny, Mike, that... This episode, the discovery of the smallpox on the island and the discovery of the girls, is a episode that rings really strongly in my memory of this book. And 
There's also a scene at the end of this chapter that we'll come to that is a really strong, vivid recollection that I have from reading this book. And they're both actually, now that I'm looking at them here, they're really economically written. Each one is just, you know, a page or two. There are a couple of key paragraphs in each one that really, really sits with me. And A, I think that's an interesting tribute to the way that O'Brien writes richly, but very, very economically. There's a lot of Stephen going on now as well. We noticed in the first few chapters of this book, I think that it was a lot about Jack and his virtue and his leadership and his calm and his goodwill. And Stephen's just been kind of carping on the sidelines. But now we're getting back into where Stephen is on his journey. This whole situation here with the girls and the island and the sickness sets our antennae quivering a little bit on behalf of Stephen, not only because of you know, him rescuing kids from a dread disease situation, but remembering that he's worried about his own hoped for and presumed daughter and Diana, of course. We're thinking about the very poignant connections he's had with children in the past, including all the way back to Dill in HMS Surprise. So O'Brien's doing a really nice job of gathering us back from Jack Aubrey land into some of the twists and turns that are going on in Stephen's character here. The surprise returns to blue water sailing, the scurvy recedes, and they find the southeast trades back again as they return to this sort of regular pattern of sea life. Um, you know, including every day they're opening the sweetening cock and they're pumping out the surprise, and they continue to do it over and over again, even though they say the surprise is now as sweet as the nutmeg. It's just become part of the routine. And Stephen and Martin continue to exchange stories in the mizzentop every day. And as we're kind of getting back into the story here, Jack hears them talking as he's writing to Sophie, and he starts complaining about how rarely he gets to Stephen because Martin is always monopolizing his time here. Well, the girls are doing well. They're learning English very fast. They're given the names Sarah and Emily, Stephen having overruled suggestions like Thursday and Behemoth as names. And Stephen <laughs> spends much of his time every day with them. And, and they're kind of perceived to be his by the crew since he discovered them. But it's, it's really neat. O'Brien tells us all about how they take quickly to the routines and customs aboard the surprise and they seem to very quickly lose their memories of their former life. As a matter of fact, there's a, you know, a kind of a, a small boat full of Solomon Islanders comes up beside them, and they're very distressed to see you know, these people that look like their people there, although they're very fond of all the surprises crew, who, of course, as always, come in all colors. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? A little reflection on how, how quickly and elastically kids' minds work. And Something else about the way that they speak. They're, they're very, very smart. They're very socially aware in a dinner. And by the way, Mike, this seems to be a chapter full of dinners. Yes. The dinners fly by in this chapter. Sitting down to dinner on this particular day, uh, Nathaniel Martin notes that the girls speak with a West Country burr on the forecastle and another more middle-class kind of English on the quarterdeck. And Stephen believed that they must have had a highly developed language ability in their own home speaking differently to different social groups and at different places. And Jack goes further and says, well, I think they're actually forgetting their, their own language. They had protested that they hadn't understood a word when Jemmy Ducks had tried to have them translate with other islanders, and they never seemed to speak to each other in their own language. And Pulling's muses about the possibility of maybe forgetting one's own language. And this is an interesting turn back to Stephen now, because this gets Stephen thinking about how 
he thought that he'd once forgotten the Irish language of his youth and how it had surged up from the depths when in recent years he'd started to speak Irish again with Padeen. And that gets us to a reflection of how much Stephen is hoping to find Padeen in New South Wales at the penal colony and to see what can be done for him. Um, uh, and Mike, we haven't thought about Padeen for a long time and he's kind of just quite quickly but gently brought back to the surface here for, for reasons that are going to become clear and important to us in the next couple of chapters. Besides the fact, though, that they're not far from Sydney, so therefore Padeen is getting more and more close as, uh, as each mile is sailed by here, it seems to be important to us in this chapter that Stephen is anticipating seeing Padeen again. He's also agonising over parenthood. He's also agonising a little bit about his role as the saviour of Emily and Sarah. And he's going to encounter some other challenges that are going to come up in this chapter. So we've got a bit of a winding of the tension spring here for Stephen Maturin. Right. Well, they cross the Tropic of Capricorn and the trade wind really starts to blow. And, and the little girls are shrieking with delight as the surprise shows what she can do. You know, she's running fast, throwing water all over them. And the surprise only slows her pace at sunrise and sunset when Jack and Mr. Adams take their Humboldt reading. So that's continuing on. And Jack then all of a sudden slows the ship way down to watch for this particular reef, uh, a shoal which uh, we, we learned is not a real place, but that Kerry Webb's website, Ian, that you mentioned earlier, he points out kind of where this might be here, somewhere near Middleton Reef or Elizabeth Reef, perhaps here. Now, Jack, at that point, you know, has invited Martin to eat in the cabin that evening and to play music with him. And O'Brien writes, although his execution was indifferent, his sense of pitch and time imperfect, and he always played rather sharp. So this is this is Jack thinking about Martin. Now, Ian, you've got a great reference for the fact that, you know, we said you know, Martin was a little off here and playing sharp. Well, it's funny. P people often talk about you know, singers being flat. And, you know, I've got a feeling, maybe it's a personal prejudice, that playing sharp is an even worse kind of out-of-tune playing than playing flat. If you haven't come across it before, check out Tim Minchin's song F-Sharp. Uh, we'll put a link out to the uh, to the song on YouTube. I'm sure you could find it. Singing sharp is oh, it's it's just horrible. It's just horrible. And the the only thing that could be worse if it was being if he was playing sharp on a German flute, I think that would be the full package, right? There, <laughs> there you go. Well, Stephen and Martin are, are talking at the rail. They're they're hanging on the rail because they hope to see the reef here. And Stephen recounts about having told McMillan, his assistant on the Netmeg, about the miseries of human life, especially as they affect medical men. And he's telling this to Martin. You know, he recounts telling Macmillan about that continual, insistent demand for sympathy and personal concern that exhausts all but the most saintly man's supply before the end of the day, leaving him openly hard in a hospital or a poor practice and secretly hard in a rich one, and ashamed of his hardness in either case until he comes to what terms he can with the situation. But Stephen continues, but I admitted another aspect, trifling in itself, yet one that can become disproportionately irritating. And there, he says, is a good example. And he's pointing at Awkward Davis. And O'Brien tells us Awkward Davis is currently possessed by an elfin gaiety. He's grabbing Emily. He's, you know, tells her to clap on. He puts her, you know, on the back of his neck and shoots up the shrouds with her. Emily's hooting with joy. And Stephen's telling Martin that he really likes Davis 
but that Davis is going madder and madder, that Stephen's weekly doses of hellebore prevent him from doing his shipmates any harm. But, you know, you kind of, he stops there and you kind of get the impression, but, you know, it's just sort of holding him in place a little bit. Stephen tells Martin, this guy is strong, he's easily angered, but that when he comes to see Stephen, he has, and O'Brien writes, a poor face, a mincing, shuffling gait, a pursed mouth, his great head inclined to one side and answers my questions in a weak, gasping tone like an old you. I should kick him if I dare, Stephen says. Now, Stephen's going on, but he, he gets cut off by the masthead spotting this reef that they're looking for. And I, I really kind of, I, I wish we had gotten to hear the, the end of this, you know, kind of what. So there's this one thing about becoming really hard because people are complaining all the time and they want sympathy and, and, and personal concern. But then he's talking about Davis here. And on the one hand, you know, I didn't know if he's talking about Davis, like how, you know, he's coming to Stephen for the answers and, uh, you know, Stephen's talked in the past before about the corrupting influence of authority, you know, like schoolmasters who are always seen as right. They don't turn out quite like people should. But I'm also wondering if he's contrasting these people who have all these demands for sympathy and personal concern, perhaps many of the patients who really are not that bad off with Davis, who's going mad and comes in, you know, while he's such a scary guy, comes in so meekly for his dose and yeah, this is the same Davis that we've heard earlier, like last chapter about how personally committed he is to Jack for having saved his life and how, you know, they don't quite to do what to do with him because he's so strong and everything. They make him a waster. But, you know, Stephen likes him. This guy's dedicated to Jack and Stephen can't save him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Ian, did you, what did you take away from that? Well, it's, I think Stephen is generally resenting people a little bit. And we're sure. going to see he's he's going to start resenting people in situations a whole lot more as we get through the chapter right, here. Right. I, I looked at this partly as a commentary about Stephen, <laughs> but also partly as a commentary about you know lots of us are a bit like awkward Davis. You know, sometimes we're all a bit, you know, we stick to certain situations and we're pretty hard to shake off and we're pretty hard to dislike, but we're pretty hard to completely like as well. Right. 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 And wow. uh, and, and we're we're a challenge to all the people who try to do well by us. <laughs> Too true. Yeah. So and. Plus, Davis is a. I love the fact that his name is Awkward Davis, not only because he's awkward in a boat and an awkward character. He kind of lands this little tone of interpersonal awkwardness all the way through the canon every time he comes along here. And I think it's great. I think it's really great. Well, I'd forgotten, but in the beginning of this chapter, when they're rowing to sea, you know, and Reed, the little one armed Reed, is in charge, tells Davis, you know, and row dry for once. You know, it's this little kid, you know, shouting at this guy who could probably, you know, tear him up with his little finger. But. There you go. Awkward Davis. Yeah. Yeah. But on the, on the other hand, in the boarding party, he's the one with the meat cleaver and yes. the line of the line of berserk spittles between his lips. So he's the one that you want next to you in those situations. Ah, well put, as Jack's reminded us before, for sure. Yeah. Well, Stephen's not the only one who's irritated here. Martin continues his, his mild irritation at not being able to fulfill all of his wishes when it comes to uh, his naturalist tendencies. He wishes that Captain Aubrey would at least give him a clear view of the Great Barrier Reef. Like every tourist has ever gone to Aussie for the last millennia. And he's, he's thought, oh, I want to go and see this great reef that they're all talking about. Yeah, Stephen had hoped for a view of a different landmark. He wanted to see Lizard Island, where James Cook and Sir Joseph had been. But he understands the captain's reluctance for coming too near reefs, especially given what happened with the Diane and all the rest of it. Uh, and that gives him a chance 
to tell Martin the story of almost running into Accessible Island um, in the Diane. And Martin says the girls have now accumulated quite the rat family, at least six of them apiece. And it seems a little bit odd why are we suddenly talking about rats, but just go with it, go with it. We're going we're gonna to get deeply into the rat story in this chapter. They discuss how the rats have noticeably had a mild temper. They're seen walking around in daylight, well above the hold, well above the cable tier, quite bold and brave, these rats. And he wondered if it was because of the unnatural cleanliness of the ballast that's been pumped day and night. And he said, well, maybe the rats had been getting fat in the in the days of the old usual smell, and now there's nothing there for them to get fat on. And meanwhile, a sail is spotted. Uh, Jack's got a pretty sure idea that it's a ship called the Tromp, uh, a ship of 54 guns, with a friend of his, Captain Billy Holroyd, in command. Um, Jack has Killick go through the pantry to see what kind of feast they can manage for the Trump, assuming that that's who it is. He hoists a signal, heave to, and come to supper. And this is all sounding great. It's going to be a little Hennage Dundas moment here. But right. no. The Trump signals charged with dispatches, and the ship can't stop. So they slow down for a little salutation. They pass each other. They exchange howdy-do's. Again, like we've talked about this earlier on how this arc of books sailing the south seas is like very very almost chance encounters of ships on thousand mile trajectories who happen to cross and become part of each other's worlds and just for a second the surprise and the tromp are part of you know they, they bring a little bit of portsmouth here billy holroyd and jack aubrey almost passing in the street waving their hats to each other exchanging the news billy says that boney's had another victory in germany there's no news from home um, the Amelia is four months overdue in Sydney, which I think is important news if you're expecting dispatches. Uh, and then they can't hear each other and, and off they sail away. And Mike, we looked for the Trump, HMS Trump. That sounds like that could be an interesting reference to dig into. What do you think? Well, it was a real ship. It was a Dutch built ship, just as they said this one was. Now, here we've got it as a 54 gun. The actual one was a 60 gun ship captured from the Dutch in 1796. But in real life, it was sent for harbor duty in 1799. So well before the nutmeg of Constellation timeline here. Uh, it's named for a famous Dutch seaman, Admiral Martin Harpertson Trump, uh, who, you know, who passed in 1653, again, per the POB muster book. Uh-huh. It's turned out to be quite the resource for us lately, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. Well, at dinner, Jack says he's sorry they won't get to hear Captain Holroyd's true tenor, so rare in a service which requires captains to be roaring at everybody constantly. He hopes Killick will have found some good things in the pantry. And then he's, you know, he's obviously he's hosting uh, Martin, and this is going to be a great feast because it was going to be with the captain from the Trump. And he asked Martin, he says, wait, oh, you know, I've been pouring you uh, Madeira, but I remember that you'd rather have sherry. And Martin says, no, the Madeira is fine. Actually, it's given him the appetite of a lion. And they all are wondering what's keeping Killick. Usually he's, you know, fiddles us up long before this. Well, Stephen's playing a little Irish music on his cello. They ask him to play it again. And Killick opens the door and says, the soup is ready, 
but the rats have eaten almost everything else. And they're still out there walking around, paying no heed, staring saucily, says Killick, and that he's had to spend hours trying to look for something, anything left to eat. And Jack says, well, just, you know, just serve the soup and the wine and then see what you can come up with. Tell the tell the cook to get at it. So in the end, Mike, this, this dinner is a bit of a washout. Jack even finds a nice, uh, nice tag for it. He calls it a barmicide feast. Tell us a bit about Barmicide feasts. Well, it, it means you know a feast that's illusory or imaginary. And it comes from you know, the tales of the Arabian Nights. There's a prince called Barmaki who gives a beggar a feast of ornate but empty dishes. So, Oh, wow. Okay. It's funny. I read the word Barmicide. I thought that, sa- that sounds like it might be a kind of a biblical thing, like an Old Testament thing. But no, it's an Arabian thing. Right. Well, it sounded like a poison to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, Jack is prepared to write off the meal as a bit of a dead loss, therefore. And Martin says, not at all, sir. There is nothing I prefer to... Uh, he hesitated, trying to find a name for salt beef, 18 months in the cast, partly desalted, cut up very small and fried with crust ships, biscuits and a great deal of pepper. Uh, to a fricassee. And bless him, Martin's trying quite hard to be obliging, you know, naming this as a fricassee. He's uh, he's working really hard, I think, at his relations with Captain Albury here. So, Mike, it's, it's, it's a funny kind of halfway point in the chapter here. We've made some great progress in bringing Emily and Sarah aboard. Uh, we've rescued them. We're making progress towards Botany Bay. But everything kind of seems, you know, half set half matured here maybe the same goes for our episode uh, maybe we should all pop indoors and see if there's a bit of fricassee ready on the stove and uh, perhaps come back after a short break if you're enjoying the podcast please come and join our supporters on patreon go to patreon.com forward slash lovers Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the episode, Mike, I I want to do a couple of parish notices. Here we go. In the spirit of Parson Nathaniel Martin. First of all, we haven't done this before, but we want to say a big hello to all of our listeners on YouTube. There are loads of you, literally hundreds of people who listen via youtube.com forward slash lovers hole. We don't want you to think that we're not thinking of you. Um, We love the fact that we get dialogue from you in the comment section on YouTube. Um, We love the fact that there's this whole other bunch of people out there who are enjoying the show. If you are enjoying the show on YouTube, then thank you. Please do, in any case, hit like and subscribe and uh, give yourself the chance to stay up to date. If you've never checked out our YouTube channel, then you might have missed that our special 100th episode was recorded as a video in glorious Technicolor with Ian and Mike's faces and those of some of our listeners too, um, visible for us all to enjoy. We also on YouTube have the ability to organize the uh, previous episodes into playlists for each book of the canon. So if that's a, a useful feature for you, then you can check it out there. Anyway, once again, a big hello uh, and thank you to all of our loyal YouTube listeners and a YouTube glass of wine with all of you. Secondly, we've had some great dialogue with some of our listeners on Facebook this week and some nice things came through that we wanted to share with you just now. Amidst all the references and discussions that we had in episode 116 a couple of weeks ago, we missed a great one. And thanks to our listener, Owen Ranger, 
Owen follows us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lover's hole, who very kindly gave us some great background behind this reference that we that we missed. Owen says, hey, Margaret Ian, you completely passed over a neat architectural reference to what Stephen referred to as the icy cathedral of Teruel. The cathedral of Santa Maria de Medellivia was laid down in 1171 and finished in 1257 and is an outstanding example of Mudéjar architecture, that's to say Christian architecture, with a distinctive Moorish flair named after the Muslims who stayed in Spain during and after the Reconquista. This place would already have been centuries old when Stephen went to Mass there. It was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1986 and therefore may have been on O'Brien's mind given that the nutmeg was published in 1991. And Owen says, I've been to Teruel myself and the cathedral and can confirm that it is chilly inside and must be more so first thing in the morning. Well, I hope you wrapped up warm, Owen. Interestingly, the cousins who went to daily mass in Teruel could not have lived in the castle that Stephen inherited from Don Ramon because we know from previous context that that castle is hard up against the Pyrenees and the French border, whereas Teruel is much further south, closer to Valencia. So it turns out Stephen really did spend a lot of his childhood shuttling around Catalonia. So thank you, Owen. Great observation. And finally, we've been having a bit of a chat, as you might remember, in the last couple of weeks about Star Trek connections. And Steve Tamargo also got in touch with us on Facebook. Thank you, Steve. Steve says, I nodded at your collective assertion that the reference was likely a coincidence and Patrick O'Brien couldn't have seen Star Trek until in the very next topic, when in the very same conversation in the book, Jack and Stephen have an in-depth discussion about Botany Bay. This was, of course, the name of Carnunian Singh's ship in which Kirk found him and his crew adrift and asleep in the Star Trek episode Space Seed. Uh, those of you who are Star Trekies are all nodding along at this point and going, oh, yes, I remember that one. Those of you who are not, your eyes are rolling back in your head, but tough. We're going to enjoy it. Steve says, I've always thought that the relationship between Jack and Stephen is very much like that of Kirk and Spock slash McCoy. We completely agree with you, Steve. With Maturin taking on some of the characteristics of both iconic characters. Yeah, 100%. And perhaps, just slightly more perhaps, our esteemed author might have caught some syndicated reruns at some point. Probably not, says Steve, but it's something to ponder whilst waiting out the dog watchers. Very, very good. I mean, it's not a big stretch to think of colonizing slash convict type people sent away being on a vessel named after Botany Bay. But still, but still, we love your instinct for a coincidence, Steve. Thank you very much to both of you for getting in touch on Facebook. Mike, that about covers it for parish notices. Um, let's get back to the episode. Back in chapter eight, a few days after that unsuccessful feast with Martin and a couple hundred miles from Sydney, Stephen goes to the storeroom to replenish his coca leaves. Now he's packed more than enough to get him to Peru. Now these leaves are packed in a wooden chest covered in Javanese brasswork. And he's really not worried about the strange confidence of the rats that there's been because there's no food in this storeroom. There's, there's wine here, of course, sealed in glass bottles, books, cold water clothing, and this chest with his leaves. But he finds that the rats have gnawed through the floor plank and then through the bottom of the chest and, in fact, have gotten in and have eaten all the leaves, 
all the leather that they were packed in, so that had the scent of the leaves, and there's only rat dung left in this chest here. Wow. A group of rats, he reports, are standing right outside his lantern light now, waiting to get back into the chest. Stephen presumes to gnaw any wood that smells anything like coca leaves. So these rats are really, you know, really jonesing here on <laughs> yeah. this supply of coca leaves here. Well, Stephen leaves head straight to the sick berth you know, with the thought of putting all the herbs and portable soup into metal boxes. And he tells Martin, you know, what's happened with the rats. And then Stephen remembers that, uh, you know, a little while ago, he had spilled some of his leaves in his room and hadn't cleaned them up, thinking, you know, I've got plenty, I'll just leave them there. And that the rats had probably gotten them. And once they'd gotten that taste, they'd used all their powers to get a little bit more. So this is our official reminder, just say no, don't, don't get that first taste, right? <laughs> so Stephen then attributes... All of this, you know, strange behavior of the rats wandering so openly on ship, you know, to like probably when they're in this euphoric state with the uh, with the coca leaves. And then when they're off of them, vexed, they're attacking the captain's pantry, uh, you know. So he's saying this is all due down to the coca leaves here. Now, Martin hopes that Stephen will not be vexed like the rats have been vexed at, you know, losing this entire supply. He says, you know, I, I hope it doesn't affect you the way it does some people when they have no more tobacco. And oh. Stephen, <laughs> our true Stephen way says, oh, no, coca leaves don't cause a vehement addiction like tobacco. And I think to myself, you know, Stephen's spoken like a true addict. Well, well done. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's great. Sometimes in Patrick O'Brien, these questions are raised and then only addressed paragraphs, pages, chapters, or even books later. In this book, the question is raised and the very next line of the text starts to tell us the answer. The next day, Emily and Sarah's tame rats bite them. The rats disappear. The rats are heard fighting viciously in the hold. There are death shrieks and screams of rage. And the rats are not merely irritated with Nathaniel Martin's sharp playing. They're clearly, as you say, Mike, jonesing like nothing on earth. Most of the surprises don't hear the commotion with the, uh, with the withdrawal symptoms of the rats because they're off catching these great 400-weight turtles that they've spotted basking on the surface or helping Jack to kill the last Solomon Islands pig to give Martin a good supper to make up for the last one. But clearly something is rotten in the state of rats here. Meanwhile, Stephen is writing to Diana about their two best dinners being on the nights before they enter Sydney Cove, Jack's dinner for Martin and the gun room's dinner for Jack. He describes in the letter how the rats have become slaves to the coca, have been deprived of the leaves, and now they lack fear and they fight and kill one another. Stephen reflects on his own state a little bit and says, well, I haven't killed anyone or desired to, but he notices that he's eating exorbitantly, he loves smoking, and is always falling asleep, which is the opposite of his behavior when he's under the influence of the leaves. So he's really looking forward to getting to Sydney in a couple of days. He's looking forward to hearing from her, and he's hoping to replace his leaves. He doesn't want, he says, to be reduced to the state of the rats. Mm. Well, we'll see. So he's referring to these two feasts. Mike, tell us about these feasts and how they went. Yeah, this this gunroom feast, you know, goes really well. You know, even though the gunroom's not fancy, they've they pulled up a minor miracle. Somehow the cook has come up with the ingredients to make Jack's favorite form of food, a suet pudding, one, you know, 
I mean, we talked a lot about with Dr. Neil Buttery last week. This one happened to be the one known in the surface as Boiled Baby. They, as a hired vessel, the, the Surprises Gun Room serves on pewter, so it's not the fancy silver. They don't have servants behind the officer's chairs because there's no Marines or boys who often fill that role. But the conversation is far less constrained than it was back in the days when they had all this, and it was HMS surprise here. It's an excellent dinner. And towards the end, Jack asks any of them if they've touched at Sydney before. And they haven't. And Jack starts to tell them about when he and the doctor last touched in the leopard. Uh, he said they didn't stay very long, but they had a very nasty general impression of this place, this place run by soldiers, and that he, for one, has never met a soldier that didn't dislike a sailor. Oh. A, a little bit harsh on poor old Colonel Keats back in the Mauritius command, but never mind. Right, true, true. Well put, Ian. Well, there's, there's a great quote here des- describing in one sweeping paragraph all of the uh, the deficiencies of the, the military establishment here in, uh, in Botany Bay. I found them an overdressed, underbred, inhospitable, quarrelsome set of men. I know the army's not very particular about the people who buy a commission in new-raised, out-of-the-way regiments, but even so, I was astonished. They had pretty well monopolised trade, forming a ring that did away with all competition. They had taken up all the good land, which they farmed with free convict labour. They were exploiting the place for all they were worth. But infinitely worse than all that, worse than their corrupt selling to government at starvation prices, was their treatment of the wretched prisoners. I have been aboard more than one hell afloat, and they make a man's heart sick, but I have never seen anything to touch the cruelty in New South Wales. Floggings of 500 lashes, 500 lashes were commonplace. And even in the short time I was there, two men were whipped to death. Hmm. And Jack goes on and says that the, the people there know that those who've just arrived see them as blackguards and are very touchy about it, and they're apt to take offence, and he reminds the company at this dinner that you know you can be called out for a trifling observation. I'm like, it, it's been a while since anybody mentioned the threat of duelling among gentlemen, and it's interesting that it's been mentioned right now. It's Jack saying, "Trade carefully, gentlemen, because you might find yourself on the wrong side of a challenge." His advice: distant civility, official invitations, are no more. He says. He reminds them that there's no justice in a quarrel with a blackguard. You have nothing to win. They have nothing to lose. And any of them can point a pistol. So everyone needs to avoid the possibility of an encounter. A scoundrel, he points out, can put a bullet in a decent man. So Jack's taking care of the generalities here, Mike. And Stephen's going to dig into the specifics of some of the particular characters here. Yeah, one of these characters, MacArthur, was one of these scoundrels, and he'd shot Colonel Patterson, who said everybody said was an excellent officer. And MacArthur was recalled to London for a court-martial, and Stephen had met MacArthur while he was there. He had actually eaten at the Royal Society. He said that he was a little formal at first, but he came very loud and lewd, you know, way too familiar. He had wanted to buy some of the king's merino sheep. And he proposed calling on Sir Joseph Banks, who supervised that flock. Now, Banks had learned about the man from others in the colony, and so he decided not to receive him. He declined to receive him. MacArthur was part of a regiment known as the Rum Corps because, as O'Brien tells us, 
Rum was its first basis of trade, wealth, power, influence, and corruption. So this is kind of building back onto Jack's description about how these guys had really came to own and run this place, you know, with lots of corruption here. Now, the new governor, Macquarie, has been sent with the 73rd Regiment to make some changes, but the Rum Corps still more or less runs the country here. And, and I hope we're going to get back. I, I, I think we're going to have an appearance by Governor Macquarie later in the book and, and get to revisit this guy. Fascinating guy. True guy, real life, real fifth governor of New South Wales. And some of the things that happened in the story, you know, really do correspond to his life here. Yeah, that's right. And, and there are so many institutions and public bodies named after him in New South Wales and Sydney right now that it's almost hard to imagine that you can do anything without being called Macquarie. So he was obviously uh, quite the figure. Right. Ah, well, the, the night ends with a cheerful song, but over breakfast, Jack is pretty silent. The text says he looked yellow, puffy, liverish. He had not taken his morning swim and his eyes, usually bright blue, were now dull, oyster-like with discoloured bags below them. His breath was foul. And Mike, uh, oyster-eyed is a term normally given to either Hanoverian kings or uh, army officers in these books, so it's not a, not a pleasant association for Jack. Uh, Bondon, thinking that Jack is recovering from dinner, asks Killick if the doctor was also drunk. And Killick says he wasn't, but he wished that he had been. It would have made his crabbedness more natural. Ah, so people are starting to notice that there's a bit of an edge to Stephen at the moment. He wonders what's come over Stephen. We get some more examples of this edginess. He had spanked, corporally punished, Sarah and Emily, and he had somehow, we're not given the details, checked Joe Place cruelly. And uh, Stephen's clearly not himself. And as we're all speculating here on what might be the origins of Jack's hangover and Stephen's grumpy mood, Jack has, thinks he's found a reason. He says, I'm not sure that the gun room's turtle was quite wholesome. The, Stephen says, well, the turtle was fine, but you just ate too much. And Stephen's edge comes to the fore again here. He lays into Jack. I mean, even more cruelly than he's been in the last few chapters. He says, I've told you again and again that you are digging your grave with your teeth. You are at present suffering from a plethory, a common plethory. I can deal with the symptoms of this plethory but the self-indulgence that lies behind them is beyond my reach. Wow. Okay. Okay. If this was the 21st century, somebody would be going to Stephen Matcher on Facebook. Oh, you okay, hon? PM me. PM me. Anyway, uh, Jack, without the benefit of Facebook, is happy to have some help with his symptoms before the governor should ask them to dinner. Stephen says he'll give him some physic, which will confine him to the seat of ease for most of the day and perhaps part of the night. Jack's happy to take it. He wants to get the surprise cleaned. He wants to get a bottom scraped. Um, he wants to get the ship refitted. And he needs to be well with the authorities to get that done. And we all remember the experiences that he's had in Malta and Mohan in the past getting stuff done by shipyards. To be well with them, he says, you have to eat their food hearty and drink their wine as though you enjoyed it. And that's something that he can't do in his present state. So all he can take right now is bear biscuit and black coffee and... He's inviting Stephen to do what he can. So Stephen doses him, but Jack wonders if he's been given enough medicine. And Stephen says that, you know, he's had plenty, you know, you know Jack say, hey, I'm not your light, you know, one of your lightweights. 
On deck, Martin has, according to Stephen, this irritating enthusiasm looking at Sydney Cove. And, you know, I, I, I think, as you say, Ian, we're, you know, we're, we're certainly getting this picture of Stephen feeling the loss of his coca leaves here. Um, and then Stephen kind of abruptly corrects Martin saying, you know, this is Port Jackson. And uh, Martin says, oh, you know, is that the home of the Port Jackson shark? And now Stephen comes around a little bit. and They're thinking, oh, you know, we'll, we'll get one of these sharks here. But Pullings runs over and goes, no, 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 no. No shark hunting today here. You know, we've been getting the ship ready to come into the cove, ready to be, you know, have guests aboard. So, Ian, you've rightly pointed out, uh, this, is, this is actual geographic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Port Jackson is part of, part of Sydney Harbour. It's on the kind of the north shore of Sydney Harbour between Sydney Central District and, you know, say Manly. I mean, Mike, I remember you and I took the Manly Ferry from exactly. Central Sydney, from Circular Quay over to Manly, and I think we would have gone right past Port Jackson. Intriguingly, one side of Port Jackson is bounded by a headland named Bradley's Head. So who knows? Yeah, that's right. Well, so they're up there. They've got this conflict about whether they can get a shark or not. And Jimmy Ducks runs up and says that Sarah has swallowed a pin. You know, Martin and Stephen, you know, go directly down. And O'Brien tells us they spend more time on this pin with Sarah than they do, you know, on the results of many a brisk action with all their kind of, you know, men to take care of here. So in taking care of Sarah, they miss the entire entrance to the harbor. They miss an officer who comes aboard and they miss their dinner here. Um, uh, O'Brien says that, you know, the two of them eat a few scraps together. And then Stephen, feeling tired, uh, goes off to his cabin uh, to lay down. He's off the coca. He's exhausted a lot here. And the next day, O'Brien tells us, he's in the same cabin, dressed up now in his very best, exasperated because there have been no letters from home. We got that thing about the Amelia four months late last time here or earlier. And he's writing to Diana, hoping that he'll hear from her before they leave Sydney. He tells her that yesterday, Jack, you know, absolutely convinced that he needed more medicine, had kind of bullied Martin into giving him some. And now, of course, he can't leave the toilet at all. Uh, He's been double dosed, if you will. Um, (laughs) So now Stephen has to go with Poolings to attend this invitation to Government House. They're going to be representing the ship. And Stephen is not looking forward to it. He's, He's very irritated that he couldn't find any coca leaves in town this morning. Um, and he really hates that he's found the place much like he left it, as he said, squalid, dirty, formless, with inconveniently placed ramshackle wooden huts, rugged convicts and chains everywhere, floggings. You know, he saw one that had 200 brutal lashes, unlike the usual 12 lashes that he sees, you know, on Jack's ships here. He said, but he did, however, see the beginning of a new hospital being started by the new governor. So, hmm. A little bit of hope here, but, you know, doesn't like it. And he's interrupted the boats alongside. Killing wants Stephen to carry a gold-headed cane with him. And Stephen's like, yeah, not on your life. I'm not going with that. But he settles for taking the captain's patriotic fun sword. And, you know, he says, you know, how is the captain doing? And Killick reports that Jack still has a 90-year lease on the quarter gallery. (laughs) He's not not moving from the seat of AEs. Oh, bless him. Um, surprise, surprise. He's, he's, he's overdosed himself. We've heard about this in general about sailors, and here is Jack being true to type. Without Jack present, which might turn out to be an important feature here, this dinner goes ahead. 
Uh, the governor's wife, Mrs. Macquarie, and the governor's deputy, Colonel McPherson, receive the guests. There are officers of the New South Wales Corps, who are now substantial landowners. There are officers of the 73rd and of the Navy. Stephen quite likes the governor's wife. She says that she's sorry that the governor is away, but neither she nor any other woman will be at the dinner. Stephen tells a surgeon seated next to Stephen that he would have liked to have asked Mrs. Macquarie about the two girls on the ship. He's looking for a place for them. Uh, Mr. Hamlin, the surgeon, says that she's spending the afternoon at the orphanage and would be happy to help. He also likes her, and they'd spent the morning talking about the new hospital. The guest on Stephen's other side is Firkins, the penal secretary, who's busy talking about what he calls the irredeemable wickedness, sloth, immorality of convicts, the assignment of convicts, and their dangerous nature. And Mike, this, this is already a little bit of a danger sign here. Anybody who's ranting about morality and wickedness over dinner with Stephen is going to end up on the wrong side of him. But let's see how this develops. Across the table from him is a man as big as Jack, probably, we think, with the rum core. And the clergyman next to him has a red face growing redder. Stephen can't follow the conversations. But he has many references to United Irishmen who are prisoners who'd been transported after the 1798 Rising. And Stephen notes that the Scottish officers of the 73rd, that is to say Scottish, not English, perhaps less likely to be sympathetic to this kind of very partial, bigoted English view of the conversation. Those officers are not taking part in the conversation, but they are in the minority. And Mike, th this conversation started badly. It seems to be going from bad to worse. Yeah, so the clergyman says that the Irish do not deserve the appellation of men. That is, they don't deserve to be called men. And he's quoting Governor Collins of Van Diemen's Land, which we know as Tasmania here. Mm. And he adds that in addition to this, they now are allowing priests to see them. And he reminds them that a cunning priest can make an Irishman do anything. So I think you're right, Ian. This is quickly going from bad to worse. Now, Stephen asks Hamlin, you know, who's this guy who's speaking? And Hamlin says it's Marsden, a wealthy sheep farmer and magistrate. But Marsden says once he's on to the poor old Pope and Popery, he never leaves off. Oh. Now, you know, from the other end of the table, you know, Tom has this bored face with this fixed, dutiful smile. But kind of hearing some of this, he turns to Stephen with a very anxious look. I think he's a little worried about, uh-oh, these guys are going to set Stephen off here. And then Stephen's neighbor, Firkins, this penal secretary, starts talking about the poverty of Ireland and its inevitability. Firkins turns to Stephen and says that the Irish are like the Aborigines, feckless. If you give them a sheep, they eat it at once rather than breed and grow them. He says poverty, dirt, and ignorance must necessarily attend them. Boy, and I think we're we are right on the precipice now. Oh, yes. Stephen's rejoinder is one that he's used before, and it's a very smart one. He, he turns back to the history of the Venerable Bede. He asks if he's ever read Bede, a person known for his ecclesiastical history of England. We last talked about the Venerable Bede back with Raffles a book or so ago. He hasn't. Stephen asks Mr. Marsden if he has. He also hasn't and resumes his story of whipping a mere boy who they say, on account of being young, was only given a hundred lashes. Stephen announces that Bede lived in County Durham, which is the, the home county of my wife. He says little is known about the northern part of England, and many would say that's still true. He hopes a future naturalist will study the area 
along with the botanist, and a draftsman would study the area and provide an account. Stephen, very, very carefully choosing his words, says, The manners of the wild Aborigines, their superstitions, their prejudices, their sordid way of life, will extort from him many useful reflections, and his draftsman will portray the ruins of the great monasteries of Weymouth and Jarrow, the home of the most learned man in England a thousand years ago, famous throughout the Christian world, and now forgotten. Such a work, he says, would be well received. It's great that he's under control like this, Mike, but Stephen's shooting his rejoinders like a, you know, a thousand yards above the heads of these drunk, ignorant dinner guests. The guests are completely silenced by this. The big man opposite Stephen finally says, there ain't any Aborigines in Durham. And in, in a little aside to fellow people from the Northeast, well, you may well say that about County Durham, but I'm pretty sure there are parts of County Durham where they still eat missionaries. Anyway, never mind. The learned guests try to explain what Stephen meant, that Aborigine doesn't mean just an Australian Aboriginal, it means anybody who's an original native. Stephen says inwardly, let me not be a fool. God preserve me from collar. And back to the whole story of black bile, which had got Goffin into trouble in the last chapter. But the flow of talk from the other end of the table sweeps the incident into the past. Well, Hamlin tells Stephen that the man across from him, Captain Lowe, has imported Saxony Merinos to make a new sheep crossbreed. Uh, he tells him this is the richest man in the colony. At that time, the flogging parson starts savaging the Pope again, saying he was thinking of the king's Merinos of the Spanish breed, and Captain Lowe then joins in. Hamlin says that oh, Dr. Martin has seen the king's flock, and Stephen says that Sir Joseph Banks was kind enough to show him. Lowe doesn't like Banks and wonders why in the world he stopped MacArthur from getting any of the king's sheep. You know, he says, you know, maybe it was because he was from the colony. And Stephen says, no, you know, Sir Joseph Banks supports the colony, but he might not have thought a man with MacArthur's antecedents a desirable acquaintance. And also, you know, MacArthur was in London being court-martialed for dueling, and Sir Joseph strongly objects to duels. Lowe is silent, but mutters occasionally undesirable acquaintance. <laughs> wow. And now we see why we had that slightly strange little aside earlier on in the chapter about these Merino sheep. This is, this is an episode that's known about and has come back up in this conversation here. Stephen, obviously still really stressed out by this, is praying for patience as the group gets back into railing about Irish prisoners again. At coffee, Stephen finds his hand is shaking from contained anger. He goes out to smoke and to talk with two Gaelic-speaking Hebridean officers of the 73rd, and this eases the tension somewhat. He and Pullings take their leave, gather their swords, and walk down the steps. Captain Lowe, standing on the gravel, says to Stephen, I don't give a bugger for Joe Banks, and I don't give a bugger for you either, you half-baked sod of a ship's surgeon. He spoke very loud and hoarse, and two or three officers turned. I think, Mike, it's important that the two or three officers turn. So this, this scene has been witnessed now, which means that what happens next becomes more and more grimly inevitable. Stephen looked at him attentively. The man was in a choking rage, but he was perfectly steady on his feet. He was not drunk. Will you answer for that, sir? He asked. There's my answer, said the big man, with a blow that knocked Stephen's wig from his head. Stephen leapt back, whipped out his sword and cried, Draw, man, draw, or I shall stick you like a hog. Lo, unsheathed his sabre, little good did it do him, 
In two hissing passes, his right thigh was ploughed up. At the third, Stephen's sword was through his shoulder. And at the issue of a confused struggle at close quarters, he was flat on his back, Stephen's foot on his chest, Stephen's sword point at his throat, and the cold voice above him saying, Ask my pardon, or you are a dead man. Ask my pardon, I say, or you are a dead man. A dead man. I ask your pardon, said Low, and his eyes filled with blood. End of chapter eight. <laughs> Whoa, that reptilian glare is back. Yeah. <sighs> so this, this, like I said, Mike, at the beginning, this is the other big memorable scene from this whole book that sticks with me. I can remember the lines. I can remember my, my visualization of Stephen going at this guy. And these are both really, really kind of memorable set pieces for me. I enjoyed it in the sense that I was right behind Stephen, you know, listening out for all these bigoted slights and insults that he's taking. But at times when I've read it quickly, I, I haven't always completely seen how Stephen got there. I mean, it's not the first time he's been uh, trolled by anti-Irish bigotry from a drunken soldier. But this isn't just trolled for being Irish, Stephen. This is financially impoverished, family distanced, Padine missing Stephen, and even more importantly, this is Stephen jonesing on cold turkey from his coca leaf withdrawal. So this guy low never stood a chance. Really, really great scene. Yeah, and and he's this great big guy who hits him in front of witnesses, like you say. I mean, we we know how we've talked before about the difference between English doing and Irish doing. Yeah, you know, this, this is it. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I'm sure as as much as I kind of get it, especially, as you say, given where Stephen's head and emotions and everything are right now, you know, I'm certain Jack is not going to be happy. You know, there's nothing, you know, that quite wins over the authorities as, as you know, <laughs> defeating their richest citizen who also happens to be an officer in a duel on the first day at shore here. You know, so I, I'm not sure what this is going to mean for the surprise getting cleaned and refitted for the surprises going ashore for getting really anything done here you know, in New Amsterdam. Uh, now, I also am kind of wondering, I know Stephen's very interested in seeing what he can do for Padine here. And now he's just been sitting next to the penal secretary. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of thinking, yeah, we're, you know, this is, you know, we're not going to put Stephen as the head of HR at the moment here or, or the head of our no, negotiation. No, no, no. He's, he's not doing himself any diplomatic favors at all. So can he pull something out of the bag for Padine? Can Jack pull something out of the bag with the authorities ashore despite this episode? They've both moved on in the world a little bit since the old days. Maybe they've got what it takes or maybe they're going to get stuck amongst a resentful bunch of shore-going people. Mike, there's a, what is it? Two or three chapters left here. There's still a lot to play for. Definitely. Lots of questions to answer. What do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart.
This is your very own Patrick O'Brien podcast. I'm here with Mike. Ah, uh, no, I'm not. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Sam. <laughs> Hello again. 